morning, everybody. How are you today? You look good. You look great. Yeah, you're looking good. You ready for today? How many of you love Grace? Let me see. Not a girl named Grace, but I mean, Grace, you know, although you might love a girl named Grace too, but you love Grace. Let me see again. Grace, okay. Uh, let me ask the following question. How many of you have ever like failed at something? Let me see. And needed Grace? Anybody like me? All right. I was surprised. I thought every hand would go up, but I guess there's a, a few that you're okay. Okay. Uh, how many of you have ever made a choice that brought you regret or maybe brought regret to your family or brought regret to your friends? I have been that person. I have done that. Uh, here's a couple of categories just to think about. Maybe you gossiped about somebody and it hurt their feelings. Maybe you drank too much. Maybe you got hooked on porn. Uh, <laughs> we're getting heavy fast, aren't we? Um, <laughs> Maybe you betrayed a friend, maybe you ran up your credit cards, maybe you lied to a spouse, maybe you had an affair. Uh, those were seven topics. I have failed in five of those. Now, I'm not going to tell you which ones, so you can try to figure that out. But, but I want to ask you this question today, because we're going to talk about grace, because grace is what really characterizes God and his relationship with us. Uh, have you ever wondered why God allowed you to make that choice? Like, how, like God, you knew I was going to do this. Why didn't you stop me? And it's because of this, this beautiful and terrible thing called free will. God has allowed us to have free will, which is amazing. It's an amazing gift, but also it can be a very terrible thing. And what happens in free will is that God allows us to make choices, and then his grace becomes evidence in our lives. Grace just really means that, that God allows us to have something that we really didn't deserve, Forgiveness, his goodness, his love, all those things. And I love this verse in Romans 8, 28, because his grace also is what he uses to develop our character so he can bring good things even out of the bad choices that we make. And that's, that's good news for somebody today, okay? Because you may be in the middle of a bad choice. Romans 8, 28 says, we know that God causes everything. Can you say everything? Everything, everything means everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. So what I want to make clear today as I talk about grace is that God does not want us to fail, but some of us are slow learners. <laughs> you know, just some of us just need a little more grace than others, right? And here's the thing about God. He uses the consequences of our failures to bring us to the end of ourselves, like we tend to be people who think we can do it ourselves or we like to do things our own way. I did it my way, you know, the old classic song. Um, and, and God will literally, he'll allow our consequences to bring us to the place where we, we come to the end of ourself and we become more dependent on him. And I really think that's his purpose for failures and faults and the need for grace. So this is called redemption when God does this. He's able to really use things that were bad in our life to bring forth something good in our life. And I've got to tell you, that, that is so hopeful, right? That God can do that. It's so hopeful. Um, so God uses our sin and its consequences to make us aware of our character, our lack of character, and help us change. C.S. Lewis, the great author, said that pain is the megaphone that drives us to God. And what we don't want to do is ever waste the pain of the failures that we've had in our life. We don't want to waste that pain and not let it promote or provoke change in our life, right? So we want to let God use that pain to change us. Now, this morning, our story in our series is called The Three Kings. 
And we're going to do in this story is we're going to talk about three kings and talk about how um, they responded to failures in their life and some good and, and some not so good, and, but how God could use them, no matter how imperfect, to fulfill his, his purposes. And that's a pretty cool story. It's a story of how God will let us go our own way. God will allow us to go our own way. Um, he will let us make bad choices. He'll let us experience the consequences of our choices. I've, I've been that guy to feel the loss of those choices. And then he will forgive us and he'll restore us and he will use it for his purposes if we are willing, if we are willing. That little thing called repentance, that little thing called the willingness to change, having a soft heart for God. That's, that's what's necessary in order for God to use all this for his purposes. So today's story is a story about God's epic grace that God chooses to partner with imperfect people over the centuries, over the entire Bible. God chooses to partner with imperfect people to make his purposes happen. So you ready for this? We're going to jump in. You're going to get probably a little picture of yourself in here, okay? So last week, Pastor Steve preached. We left the Israelites with Joshua in the promised land. And so now for about 400 plus years, God has used judges and priests to rule his people. God would appoint judges and priests and he would speak through them. And that's how he led his people. He didn't have kings. He had judges and priests. And so the book of Judges which if you want to really great, read some great stories, is filled with drama and war as the Israelites go back and forth between following God and not following God. Sometimes they followed him, sometimes they didn't, and then God would allow them to experience the consequences of that, but then he would always take them back. God would always take them back, even though they had rebelled. We see this phrase over and over and over again through Judges. It'll talk about something that the Israelites did, usually worshiping false gods. And then it'll say, the Israelites did evil in the sight of God. But then the next part of the story usually has something to do with God's grace, uh, welcoming them back as they turned, as they repented, as they were willing, God's grace restores them. So we live through all these judges and priests, 400 and plus years. And then finally in 1 Samuel 8, um, Samuel appoints his own sons to be judges. It's not always a good idea, right? And so he appoints his own sons. Turns out they're corrupt. They accept bribes. Um, but here's the thing. Instead of letting God work this out, instead of letting God's justice prevail, the people just said, no, we don't want judges anymore. We don't want judges in our life. And they wanted to do it their own way. So in 1 Samuel 8, uh, this is where we're going to start out today. I'm going to skip through a lot of passages today, so just be ready. 1 Samuel 8, verse 5. Here's what the people said. Look, they told him, Samuel, you are now old and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Catch that? They wanted to be like all the other nations, right? Like all the other nations have. Samuel was displeased with their request and he went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. You see, up until this time, the Lord had, had been their king through his word, through the judges and through the priests. He would lead his people through the priests. But now what do the people want? They want to be like all the other nations. They want to be cool kids with a cool king. You know, They want, to, want everybody to respect them because they have this great king. And ironically, this was exactly opposite of what the Lord wanted. The Lord wanted his people to be set aside. The Lord wanted his people to be his chosen people. The Lord wanted his people not to be like all the other tribes and nations. God wanted his people to be holy. And so now the people want a human response. They want a king. They're tired of God's leadership. 
and they want a man to lead them. They wanted a king. So God gives them what they want. God gives them what they want. And this means they reject him, but he gave them the king that they wanted, and God picks Saul. And it's interesting, the criteria for, for Saul being king, at least part of the criteria, was uh, Samuel, 1 Samuel 9, verse 2. It says, Saul was the most handsome man in Israel, head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. God says, I'm going to give you a king. I'm going to give you Prince Charming. I'm going to give you the king that you want. I'm going to give you this guy. He's handsome and, and stands head and shoulders above everybody else. Yes, he's strong. Yes, maybe he can lead. But I'm giving you humanity's best attempt at leadership. It's, it's kind of what God's saying. And here's the thing. When God picked Saul, he knew his heart already. It wasn't like God didn't know how Saul was going to turn out, but still God chose him. And not only did God choose him, then he gives him power to lead the people. He gives him the, him, him the anointing of his spirit to lead the people. Here's a man that, that God knows is probably not going to all turn out well, and yet he still allows him to lead and to make a difference in the nation, to win battles, to win wars, the whole thing. And so Saul leads for about 20 years until he disobeys a direct command from the Lord. And this was a big deal to God. And I want to tell you why this morning, why this was such a big deal to God. This is a big deal to God because this goes back 450 years to Exodus chapter 7 or 17. If you remember, when the Israelites left Egypt at one point on their journey, they got attacked by a tribe called the Amalekites. They attacked them and they wanted to kill them all. They wanted to wipe them off the planet. And Joshua fought in this battle. You remember this battle? It's a famous battle. Joshua fought in this battle. And while he was fighting, Moses and Aaron and Hur went up on a mountain. Now, do you remember? And whenever Moses lifted his hands, Joshua would win the battle. And whenever Moses got tired and lowered, lowered his hands, Joshua would begin to lose the battle. And so Aaron and Hur, Moses' buddies, uh, raised Joshua's hands. And as, as they held up his arms, or raised Moses' hands, as they held up his arms, Joshua won the battle. Uh, that's 450 years ago before this time, okay? So what happens now? Well, fast forward 450 years, and God had made a vow back then to Joshua. And here it is, Exodus 17. After the victory, the Lord instructed Moses, write this down on a scroll as a permanent reminder and read it aloud to Joshua. I will erase the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Okay, so that was back in Exodus 17. Now you have fast forward 450 years and now God commands Saul to fulfill this very vow that he made so many years ago over his people because Amalek tried to destroy the Israelites. And so 1 Samuel 15 verse 2, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I have decided to settle accounts. It took him 450 years, but he's settling accounts with, the, with Amalek for opposing Israel when they came out of Egypt. And now he tells Saul, go and completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation, men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. So this is an agenda that God has with the Amalekite people. And he commissions and commands Saul to take care of it, to literally wipe them off the face of the planet. And he knew that Amalek would continue to be a problem for Israel. He knew there would be a problem with false gods. He knew they would try to kill his people. And so he said, destroy them all. But what does Saul do? Saul brings back the king. 
alive. And Saul brings back a bunch of the best sheep, goats, cattle stuff, right? Brings it back with him. And this was God's response to Saul's disobedience. 1 Samuel 15, 10. The Lord said to Samuel, I am sorry that I ever made Saul king, for he has not been loyal to me and has refused to obey my command. Samuel was so deeply moved when he heard this that he cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel was grieved. He was the one who had anointed Saul as king. And early the next morning, Samuel went to find Saul. And somebody told him, Saul went to the town of Carmel to set up a monument to himself. Not God. Not God. But to set up a monument to himself. And then he went on to Gilgal. To make a long story short, uh, Saul goes to build himself a monument to celebrate this great win. And Samuel goes and confronts Saul and tells him, you've lost your job. You've sacrificed your position as king of Israel. That's number one in your notes today. Saul lost his position as king because of pride and disobedience. You see, Saul thought that he knew better than God about how to run his life and run his people. God had commanded him to completely destroy the people and he kept King Agag alive. That's a great name for a king, isn't it? Agag. (laughs) So Samuel has to finish the job for God and he cuts Agag to pieces in front of the Lord. And here's the sad thing about this story and this is what I want you to catch. You know, Saul said he was sorry. If you read ahead, he said he was sorry and asked for forgiveness and asked for Samuel to come and sacrifice with him. But his life moving forward didn't reflect it. He still was angry. He still tried to pin David to the wall with a spear. I mean, there's all kinds of things Saul did that really showed that he had not repented from his pride and from his insecurity. So moving on from Saul, God directs Samuel to go to the house of Jesse. And you'll remember this story if you grew up in church, to anoint David as king. Remember only a boy named David, that David? There's a song there. Maybe you've heard the story. Jesse calls out his sons and lines them up. Samuel goes down the the line and and from the biggest to the smallest, the oldest to the youngest, and not one of them does the Lord choose. 1 Samuel 16, 6. Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, and this is really funny because the last king got picked for his height, right? And his looks. And here God says, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. In other words, the Lord is saying, I'm going I'm to give you a different kind of king this time. I'm not going to give you a Saul kind of king. I'm going to give you a king after my own heart. And so Samuel goes along and says, the Lord doesn't see things, uh, or the Lord said to Samuel, the Lord doesn't see things by the way you see them. People judge by the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. You know, God always looks at the heart. God can always see our motivations. God can always see our responses. You can't fool God. You can't fool God. God sees in the inside. And here's David. He's not even in the lineup, right? In fact, his dad doesn't even say, go get David. His dad kind of discounts the fact that David could be king. And yet the Lord says, there's, there's one more, go get him. And, and, and so they run, get him, the most unlikely choice, only a boy. I love this part of the story. Because I think that sometimes we disqualify ourselves from anything the Lord might be wanting us to do. We think we're unlikely. We think we may not have what it takes. We think maybe we're not good enough, smart enough, bright enough, whatever. And I think God says, you know, don't worry about that stuff. 
Let me use you however I want to use you. So you have to ask the question, why did God pick David? Why did God pick David? First he had picked Saul, this big strong man, and now he picks David. And it's because he looked at David's heart. Joel said it this morning. He looked at David's heart and saw that his heart was passionate for him, was passionate for God. He saw a heart that was contrite. In other words, quick to accept that he'd been wrong. He saw a heart that was soft and that was moldable. He didn't see a perfect heart. He saw a passionate heart. And um, personally, in my list of kings, I love David. He's my favorite king because he's passionate. He's a lover of people. He's a lover of God. And yet he's a mighty warrior. He defeated his enemies. He's incredible, incredibly loyal. In fact, there's this one story about David. He was so loyal to Saul. Even though King Saul was chasing him around with 6,000 men trying to kill him, there's this one day Saul's chasing him around and he goes to relieve himself in a cave. Have you heard this story? Yeah, that's what the Bible says. So Saul goes to relieve himself in a cave. Turns out, coincidentally, to be the same cave that David is hiding in. What are the chances? So Saul's in there doing his business and David sneaks up on him and his men are, are like, kill him. Now's your chance. God's given you into, his hand, into your hand. And David's like, no, I cannot lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. David was so loyal to Saul, but also to God, because he knew that God had anointed him, so he refused to harm him. He cut off a little bit of his garment, of his robe, and showed it to Saul later. Saul couldn't believe that he hadn't killed him, right? And so he called for a covenant with David at that time, which he never kept, by the way. But David was even bothered by that. His own conscience was bothered by the fact that he had cut off a piece of Saul's robe. And so we see David as a man with a tender heart, a warrior, a tender-hearted warrior. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So he wrote, David wrote many of the Psalms that inspire us to worship. But Joel mentioned this too this morning. You know, David sinned big, probably as big or bigger possibly than any other king that we know about, any God-following king. I mean, he had some bad, bad character flaws. His heart was so passionate for God, but yet his passion took him places where he shouldn't have gone. And his sin caused the death of thousands of people. And yet God loved him. Why? Because God saw that even though David sinned horribly, he still loved God. He still had a heart for God. He still wanted to be in relationship with God. He wasn't out worshiping other idols. He still wanted to love God. You know, this is, this is so impressive about God. This is one thing that I just love about our Savior. That even though we can be the worst at times, he is so filled with grace and love that he always wants to bring us back into relationship. Always. You know, our sin should never get between us and God. God always wants us back. That's why Jesus came. To bring us back into relationship every time we go astray. And, and again, we don't sin so that grace can abound. But, but when we do sin, God wants us to come running to him. And to have a heart like David's. You know, when David murdered Uriah so that he could take Bathsheba as his wife. And um, they had that first baby boy. And there were consequences. They lost the boy. The boy died because of David's and Bathsheba's sin. And David was heartbroken. But he understood the consequence. He understood that, yes, this was the just thing. And, and here's another thing. It's just amazing about God and God's commitment to use the worst of circumstances and not limit circumstances or not limit us to our circumstances. Here's God, and he could have given David a son through any other of his wives, but God allows it to be Bathsheba. 
Isn't that amazing? This is the woman that David stole and murdered his friend to steal. And now God's going to give them another baby, even though the relationship had started in adultery and lust and murder. Uh, Remarkable. I wouldn't have done that if I were God, right? I wouldn't have done that, but God does. And again, you see the thread of grace through the covenant story of God and, and God being committed to the people that love him. And so God redeems this situation and Solomon is born, one of the most famous kings in all of history. And Bathsheba, believe it or not, is even mentioned in Matthew's genealogy of, of Jesus. She's in there. He mentioned Bathsheba, you know? It's just the craziest of things. Only three women get mentioned in the genealogy and she's one of them. Now think about this. We live in Linden. Uh, some of you I know aren't from Linden. Some of you online aren't from Linden. But I think Linden, I grew up here, I can say this, Linden is really well known for sweeping things under the carpet. Aren't we? I mean, we are expert carpet sweepers. We are people who, if we know something happened that was bad, we sweep it under the carpet. We just don't talk about it. Or we gossip about it. Those are our two choices, right? One of the two, <laughs> we sweep it or we gossip about it, right? And here's what I love about God. God's like, no, don't sweep this under the carpet. And David was a man who didn't sweep things under the carpet. David, when he was confronted by his sin, chose to be open and honest. Here's the key to recovering from bad choices that we make. And that is that we would be open and honest with God, our need for forgiveness, but open and honest with the select group of people that you trust. And share your story with them and let them in on the things that you failed at so that they can help you recover, so that you can be healed. David did this in Psalm 51. He said, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You know, when I think about God and I think about grace and, and his oath to his people throughout history and to us, it seems to me that God prefers to use the broken and the imperfect, rather than people who look good. Now, I'm not saying he can't use people who look good, okay? Don't, don't mishear me. But it's like God rejoices in the broken because he knows his grace is gonna restore us and is going to make us into somebody that we could never have made ourselves. Amen. And God loves to do that. Why? Because then he, he gets the glory. He gets the grace, right? It's his grace. David went on to say in Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. So I want to say this to you clearly this morning. There's something God loves more than perfection. God loves a broken and contrite heart. And since none of us are perfect, we're all going to need his grace from time to time, right? And so I have found that when I mess up the most is when God's love fills me the most. It's when I need him the most, if you will. It's when I create space for him. And God loves that broken and contrite heart. So if you're in sin this morning, or if you've had a season of life where you're in sin, or, or if you've suffered loss because of sin, I'm saying the, the right response, the best response, is a broken and contrite heart that the Lord does not despise. But he responds deeply to that and helps us as we go along. Now again, there's always going to be consequences for our sin. One of David's consequences was because he murdered Uriah, he was not allowed to build the temple. That's number two in your notes today. David lost out on his dream. David had a dream to build the temple of God. That was his dream. He talked about it in Psalms all the time. David lost out on his dream of building the temple because of lust, adultery, and murder. 
Remember he wrote in Psalm 84, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. That's because he loved God's temple so much, the idea of God's temple. So his dream, and here's the consequence for his sin. His dream was to build God's temple, but sin cost him that dream. And and I want to say this clearly to us, because I don't want us to mix up grace with consequences. So when we sin, there are consequences, right? We have loss in our lives. Sometimes we lose a marriage. Sometimes we lose children. Sometimes we lose our health. Sometimes we lose our license. You know, sometimes we lose things when we sin. That's the consequences of sin. But that's not a lack of grace on God's part. God still has grace for us. So we can suffer loss and consequences and experience God's grace at the very same time. So don't ever equate your consequences with a lack of his grace. That's not it. The fact is sin has consequences. Bad choices have consequences. And David would often write in the Psalms about his sin or about his, uh, how bad life was or how disappointed he was or how anxious he was. Psalm 42, 11, he said, why my soul are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. He's talking to his soul here. Put your hope in God for I will yet praise him, my savior and my God. What he's saying is no matter how bad life gets, I will still choose to praise my God. Because I know God is good and I know he has grace for me. So this is what I love about David. As compared to Saul, I think their responses are starkly different. I think David's response to his sin was that he invited God into his heart and said, have your way with me. Do what you have to do. Mold me, make me into any, any way you want me to be, Lord. And Saul, of course, was just, you know, defensive and non-repentant. And so David's soul always came back to his Savior. And I want to say that to you today. I I hope, I hope that you're a person who always lets your soul come back to your Savior when you've experienced a time away or you've experienced a wandering in your life. I hope that that you always let your soul go back to him because that's what God wants. God always wants your soul back. God always wants to be gracious to you. So the last king we're going to talk about today, enter Solomon. Again, here's the second son And he's born to the same marriage, but David had paid the price with his first son. God restores them and gives them Solomon. And after David is gone, Solomon is named king. And Solomon was making a sacrifice to the Lord one time, and God appeared to him in a dream and asked, what do you want, Solomon? Now, if if God appeared to you in a dream and said, you can have anything you want, what would it be? Have you ever thought about it? Have you? There's a lot of directions you could go with this, right? Uh, you know, that one guy you kind of like, or that girl you kind of like, or that money you want, or, you know, the car, the, you know, the house. What is it? But here's what, Solomon, here's what Solomon said. He said, I would like wisdom. I would like wisdom to rule your people wisely. And it says here that because that was a, a great request, God was pleased with his request. And he gave him not only wisdom, but then he added on riches besides And not only riches, but uh, with riches came women. And Solomon had a weakness, and it was, you guessed it, women. So first king, nothing personal women. It wasn't your fault. It was his fault, clearly. Okay. So first king 11.1. Got to get myself out of trouble before I get into it, right? Uh, Too late. Is that what you said? So now... King Solomon, this is first king, uh, this is such a great quote. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. I mean, if you're going to have something said about you as a king, wouldn't that be what you want to have said, right? So, but the truth is, 700 wives 
and 300 concubines, which is, you know, his own personal not wives. Um, <laughs> and so I find myself asking this question. I have one wife. And I got to tell you, it's hard work just keeping up with her and, you know, pleasing her and being all that she needs. And I'm like, a thousand wives? That'd be enough to just drive you crazy. I mean, what would you do? The thousand wives, you know? And they're all competing against each other and they all want David to love, or Solomon to love them most. But here's what got him into trouble. It wasn't that he had a lot of wives. It's that he had wives that brought foreign gods with them. And if you remember me saying, this was the one thing that God seems to dislike the most. It's foreign gods. It's when you, your heart is divided in worship. And, you know, I want to say today, foreign gods has kind of changed for us. I lived in Taiwan for a couple of years, so I understand the idea of gods setting on mantle places and people worshiping gods and things like that. We don't really do that that much here, but I would, I would guess there are other things in our life that can become gods, little g-gods, idols, things that we place before God, things that divide our heart. And so I would just encourage you, to think about that with me and, and think about what is it in my life that divides me in my relationship with Christ? What is it that takes my, my attention or takes the best of me uh, away from what he wants for me? So the problem with having foreign gods is that they will water down your worship. And that's exactly what happens. Uh, verse four, in Solomon's old age, they, the women, turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord, his God, as his father David had been. And again, this is what David seems to have had going for him, was that he didn't allow his heart to be divided with foreign gods. He just had affairs and murdered people. So, you know, I mean, <laughs> go figure. But it seems like the foreign God thing, that, that seems to be what God hated the most. So number three in your notes today, your last point, Solomon lost his kingdom to a servant that's where his kingdom went. It went to a servant, not even to his own family initially, because he was unfaithful to God. What does that mean? It means that Solomon's heart was divided. It means that he allowed his heart to be drawn away from the worship of the one true God, which is interesting to me because he built the temple to worship God in. And here again, you see the thread of grace through this story where God knows Solomon. He knows his heart. He knows his problems. He knows he's going to divide his heart and worship other gods. And yet, he still allows Solomon to build his temple. And I, I say that to say, don't ever give up on what God wants to do in your life. It doesn't matter how much wrong you've done. God can forgive it, can restore you, can redeem it and can use you for his purposes. That's the kind of God he is. And in fact, I would argue that when you allow him to do that, he will use you in greater ways than you could even imagine. You know, you, you couldn't have done that on your own, in other words. When my wife and I think back on our marriage struggles and our problems and our issues, we always, at the end of our conversation, always say, man, we'd never want to go through that again. But boy, are we glad we did. You know what I mean? It kind of produced something in us that, that deepened our faith and that helped us in our walk with Christ. So Solomon built the temple, a place of grace. And you see, again, this thread running through the Old Testament that, that God is the oath keeper. And even when we break the rules, even when we fail, even when we fall, God continues to stay true to his oath that he wants to restore us. And that's the beauty of grace. 
And so I want to invite our band to come up today, and I want to just talk to you a minute as they come. So try not to be distracted. Um, I want to ask you a couple questions. And the first one is this. Where is it in your life that you really need a touch of God's grace today? Where is it? What place in your life needs God's grace today? Where do you need forgiveness? Where do you need God to, to take your load? Where do you need God to come alongside you? Where do you need God to forgive you? Where do you need God to take your shame away? Some of you are hanging on to shame from years, years ago. And I'm here to tell you, God does not want you to hang on to that. He wants you to give it to him, which we're going to do during communion today. So that's the first question. Where is it that, where is it that you need God's grace? And, and the second question is this. How's your heart? Because receiving God's grace has everything to do with your heart. And in my mind, two of the kings, Saul and David, if you're going to be like Saul, Saul ended up in battle and got wounded and ended up killing himself. He fell on his own sword because he just didn't have any hope anymore. And so you can be a person who falls on your own sword. I don't mean literally commit suicide. I mean, what I mean is just don't ever change and don't let your circumstances change. Just fall on your own sword, right? Or you can be a person like David who accepts the fact that he's been wrong and he's been sinful and he's failed and allows God to meet him there. He has a soft heart. And in my experience as a pastor and as a counselor, I will tell you the difference between people changing and not changing is the people that have a hard heart or defensive heart, insecure heart, have a hard time changing. They don't learn from their pain. But people who have a soft heart who say, man, I, I really want a relationship with God, those people are more open to receiving what God has, his correction, his true, true life change. And so as we sing this song this morning, we're going to talk about God's grace. I'm really going to ask you to think about that and, and see what God has for you today as we take communion. Okay, just contemplate the words of the song. Let's stand up together. Let's worship.